Hello, PM101 listeners. You are here with us for the first program of 2023, which is actually, believe it or not, our third calendar year where we've been releasing episodes. Can you believe that? And, you know, I thought that we were going to start off the new year with a program about predictions for 2023 and recap of 2022 or something like that. But it turns out that we're going to have to dive back into the same topic that we discussed in our last program because there's been so much going on on Capitol Hill. Usually the end of the year and the beginning of the next year is a bit of a slow news period. But instead, there's been this flurry of activity on Capitol Hill around the conflict over the next speakership, the Speaker of the House. They haven't been able to agree on who to name. And that was what we talked about last time, but there's been a lot of development and we're going to have to revisit it again. We're recording this program in the evening on Wednesday, and we've spent the day kind of glued to uh, CNN and C-SPAN and Fox News and, and Justin's case, of course, watching the action on Capitol Hill and all these votes come in. It's now been six votes to try to name a new speaker. And Kevin McCarthy, who was seen as the speaker designate as the leader of the incoming majority, um, has been thwarted each time. He's not even coming first in any of those votes. He's coming second in each one. And we were expecting that this might go even further into the evening, but instead they've just had a motion to adjourn and sent everyone home. At that point, we decided that it was time to come and have a discussion about this. John, reporters are saying, and I can only speak from personal experience of the last probably 18 years, but reporters are going back 30, 40 years. They're saying that this was the most exciting motion to adjourn in history, which is basically a simple majority of folks that actually voted, voted to go home for the night and come back tomorrow at noon, which will be Thursday, a a day before this recording is released. I'd like to start out with by saying that everything we're going to be discussing today is, or not everything, uh, but a lot will be these arcane rules and procedures that are clearly messing up the media. I've been watching mostly CNN, John, but some Fox News, but it's messing up a lot of people uh, on CNN. John King yesterday on CNN was saying that Hakeem Jeffries could be speaker if he won a simple plurality of votes. And what we've what we had been seeing for the first six ballots is anywhere from 19 to 21 votes go against Kevin McCarthy. So Hakeem Jeffries was winning a simple plurality, but that's not how this works. And if you take some time and just read one or two sentences about how this thing is supposed to work, it's rather straightforward. You need a majority of the people that are present to vote in the House of Representatives. So in a normal House of Representatives, you have 435 members that show up to work if all of those were to vote for somebody with a name, you would need 218 votes. Unfortunately, this House of Representatives has 434 because one member sadly passed away. Uh, So if you do the math, if everybody were to vote for a name, you would still need 218 to become speaker. So the plurality means absolutely nothing. Now, without getting too much further into it, Some people have been voting present. Victoria Sparts, a Republican from Indiana who is rumored to want to run for governor. So what that does is by her voting present, that lowers the threshold because she's actually not counted as a vote if she's not voting for somebody by name. So instead of needing 218, just do the math, 433 divided by two is 216.5, meaning you only need 217 to become speaker 
but it, unfortunately for Kevin McCarthy, Victoria Sparts was one of his votes. So he actually still needs uh, th- the same number um, to come out in-, in favor of him, which would be 218. That is all to say the rules aren't that confusing. Every time that there are two people that vote present, just subtract from 218 how many votes somebody needs to become speaker. John, I just wanted to first off clarify that because I have a feeling we could have a deal tomorrow. We could have a deal Friday. I have a feeling that that this we may be in for a little bit longer of a haul here. So the rules are important to start out with. And let's just give a very, very straightforward explanation of the difference between those two terms, majority and plurality. And this is very common mistake that's made by many people. Common point of confusion. Plurality means you come in first. And you might come in first when there's three or four different options. A majority means you have half or more, right? And that's the difference. So you can have a plurality without having a majority. If there's multiple options in the field, A, B, C, or D, you get 40% of the answers. You come in first place, but you don't have more than half. You don't have a majority. So that's what we mean. That's the distinction we're trying to draw. And Justin, talking about the absences and the present votes and someone dying before they're able to come to Congress, I think that this is helping us recognize how difficult governing the House is going to be in the next Congress, generally speaking, because the math is very tight between the two parties. The Republicans have a very, very slim majority, and the House is never really full. You have almost no votes probably ever that have actually included 435 members of the House, full attendance. There's always people missing, someone who resigned, someone who died, uh, someone who has been arrested. That has happened. Someone who got stuck in a snowstorm and couldn't make it to Washington. There's so many reasons why these members don't show up for a vote. And you so rarely have full attendance. So when you're dealing with margins that are this thin, just having a few people missing from the vote can be the difference between the outcome. Yeah. And, and let's just use what we witnessed. So the motion to adjourn was so exciting because there are no House rules. So it's determined by the House clerk, who is supposed to be nonpartisan, uh, was hired by speaker, former Speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi. And ultimately, what she did was she closed the vote early. Now, Without getting into a huge long explanation, I believe there were 15 minutes given for folks to vote. The vote started right around eight. They left the vote open a little longer. And two Democrats had still yet to vote, with also two Republicans still having yet to vote. And the motion to adjourn was adopted 216 to 214. The the clerk actually closed the vote. And then you had a lot of yelling from Democrats. No, no, stop, stop. They then reopened the vote, and that's why it was so exciting because he really had never seen that before. And the reporters were saying that members of Congress who were outside of the Capitol were actually sprinting to try and get their vote in. And if the Democrats who were out allegedly right outside the House uh, or the chamber, rather, came in and, and were able to make their vote, it would have deadlocked. And right now, as we're doing this podcast, there would be more failed McCarthy votes that, that we could be discussing and dissecting. Uh, but basically, because the Democrats were disorganized, which you would, I would argue, you would never see this happen on the second day of a, of a p- 
potential Congress and a vote for Speaker, which is going to humiliate the Republicans into the night in primetime. You would never see that happen under a Speaker Pelosi, but new management is in town and ultimately that's what we get. So just to underscore your point, John, um, the close margins and the lack of leadership here really hurt the Democrats. On the Senate side, in the last Congress, we saw a 50-50 U.S. Senate. The vice president had to spend a lot of her time on Capitol Hill breaking ties, which is a constitutional privilege that she has. We were watching Patrick Leahy, the senator from Vermont's health status, closely because he had health emergencies that kept him away from Washington a couple times in that last Congress. And that was the difference between a majority and control of the Senate and the Senate flipping over to the Republican side. We're seeing math that is so tight right now in the House. But not only that, we're seeing the absence of leadership on the Republican side of the House. The Republicans were meant to be in the majority because they had a majority of, of seats out of the election. But if they can't really corral their members and they're dealing with a margin this thin, and we put on top of that the likelihood of common absences and and holdups that prevent members from being there to vote. Uh, we're in a situation where the House is going to be practically ungovernable, but certainly unpredictable. Yeah, and a lot will depend on the outcome of this vote for Speaker, and it will determine whether or not the next two years are basically as crazy as we've been experiencing the last few days. And it seems like if there's a Speaker McCarthy, then that's definitely a shoo-in to happen. Just to give a recap of where we're at, John and I did a show previewing what was going to happen, and, and it's kind of played out like we expected. The, the one difference is, because the margins are so thin, it's a five-person majority for the Republicans, so Speaker McCarthy, if everybody votes, can only afford to lose four. We originally thought there were only going to be five members against him, but votes one through six, there were roughly 19 and then 20 and then 21 members who did not vote for him. 20 on the last vote did not vote for him. They voted for uh, Byron Donalds and then Victoria Sparts from Indiana, who's potentially going to be a candidate for governor. And there's speculation that she'll run against Senator Mike Braun in Indiana. She voted present. So that's why we went through this whole explanation of the math and, and why it's so important um, before we started. So as we were preparing for the show, there was massive gridlock. There's deadlock. There's no speaker that was going to be coming anytime soon. But in the last hour or so, from 8 to 9 p.m., this has changed drastically with there was a potential big deal between Kevin McCarthy's super PAC the Conservative Leadership Fund, and the Club for Growth, which is a conservative organization that has been supporting people to vote against Kevin McCarthy. That deal is, I think, more minor on, on the nature of things. But ultimately, Kevin McCarthy has promised not to play in open seat red district primaries. What does that all mean? That basically means that big money directed by Kevin McCarthy and his leadership fund is not going to prevent the crazy type of people who are opposing him right now from getting elected. The, the second big thing, and there haven't been reports of this, I'm going to speculate because I feel confident in this, but please forgive me if I'm wrong. You had a Congressman Pete Sessions, who used to be chairman of the Rules Committee, 
come on and describe how there's been negotiations around um, the Rules Committee. And then he went to explain how important the chairman of the Rules Committee is. Again, we started out by saying this will all be arcane stuff. The, the chairperson of the Rules Committee, whether it be a woman or a man, they ultimately get to determine what amendments are attached to bills that hit the floor, assuming those on the committee agree with them. Uh, they can insert almost anything, depending on the rules of the House, into the bill. So let's say there's a bill that Republicans and Democrats in the Senate like, the White House likes, uh, and you know you have 10 Dem- Democrats in the House that like it. But these crazy 19, who, 20, 21, who are opposing McCarthy don't like this. The rules chairman or woman can put in a poison pill and ultimately prevent that bill from being adopted by Democrats. So it's a very important position where if you are a malcontent and really just do not want government to work, and you are the chairperson of the Rules Committee, you can prevent government from working effectively. So John, that's the big news. We started the night with 21 that we're not voting for McCarthy. I think we probably are down right now. Uh, This will be Thursday at noon. We're probably down to nine that that are potentially against Speaker McCarthy. When we talk about incoming Congressman Pete Sessions, we should probably acknowledge that he was named as unindicted Congressman number one in the criminal indictment of Lev Parnas and Igor Fruman and was a significant figure in much of the corruption around Ukraine and Donald Trump's attempts to strong-arm Ukraine and the attempts of criminals to interfere with the U.S. embassy in Ukraine. Uh, He was the author of a letter asking the U.S. government to fire the U.S. ambassador to Ukraine after receiving a big payment from Mr. Fruman and Mr. Parnas, So uh, I was shocked that he ended up coming back to Congress because his involvement in that whole affair was as a defeated congressman. And it's surprising to see him on television in this history not even being discussed. It's it's pretty remarkable. Well, he's one of Kevin McCarthy's closest allies, too, just to paint the picture of Kevin McCarthy and who he is. Indeed, he's made a lot of questionable allies in the last several years. So it's interesting you're talking about the things that are satisfying these members that were determined to vote against McCarthy until now. And one of those being that the House leadership will not play any role in supporting candidates in open primary. I mean, what's the goal of this for the renegades is to try to increase their numbers, right? Of course, their their numbers and their safety. In an open primary open primaries. Correct. So not their own safety, but the idea that they could get new recruits. Yes. So sorry. By increasing their numbers in Congress, that will increase their safety and their power and their bargaining structure. Well, the idea is that they will be strengthened when they try to do things like this again. Correct. Correct. So there's 10, 20 of them that are causing this much trouble. And the solution is to enable them to grow the size of that cohort. So it's just pushing things further and further in the direction of gridlock and ungovernable uh, GOP conference. And it's funny that that is itself the goal. It's just self-perpetuating downward cycle of um, obstruction, right? You know, we're obstructing. What do you want out of your obstruction to make you stop 
give us tools that we can obstruct more in the future. Okay, that's the deal. <laughs> so uh, the deal that that's being made to try to end this obstructionary moment is to hand them tools to make that kind of obstruction easier and more common in the future. And John, let's just almost every single sticking point. The goal is what you just described. They demanded four of the nine seats to go to members that are the holdouts, right? And we said there's 21 holdouts. Well, allegedly, Marjorie Taylor Greene has already received a seat on the Rules Committee. So if the Republicans are in the majority, and it takes a majority to get a motion out of committee, and there's only going to be nine on the committee, and four are kookadoo, wackadoo, the, the, the malcontents that are currently uh, anti, anti-McCarthy right now, and that don't want to pass debt ceiling increases that don't want to pass budget bills, that want to shut down the government, that want to throw the global economy into turmoil for no other reason than getting media. If you make four of these cuckoos and then Marjorie Taylor Greene on the Rules Committee, that seems like it's going to be a situation where no bipartisan legislation is going to get through the House in the next two years. And then in addition to that, it seems like it's going to be nearly impossible to pass a bill to increase the debt ceiling or even fund the government at an increased level from where we're at now. So that's just another example. A a third example of something that is very important is Kevin McCarthy has already agreed to lower the motion to vacate the House down to five votes. The way that Nancy Pelosi said it was that it had to be basically half the, I think it was half the the conference or half the House plus one. I'll have to uh, look that up. They want to lower it down to five. So that could be Bob Good. Biggs, Gates, Boebert, and Crane, for example, the the new member. And and they could basically send the House into turmoil all over again if Kevin McCarthy did or even said or even looked at one of them the wrong way. So so these are the three main concessions that that everybody has been focusing on. And it it really does appear like if Kevin McCarthy is a speaker and it's a long way away, and he has relented on all of these, it seems like. It's going to be impossible for the House to look anything resembling functioning, and it's going to look like what we've experienced the last two days. And just to clarify for everyone listening, the motion to vacate is like a no-confidence vote in the Speaker. It would remove the Speaker from office. So again, it's almost obstruction for its own sake, obstruction for its own purpose. What's the goal of the obstruction? To make it easier to do this again in the future and tamper with the speakership and, and put the spe- speakership into question in, in the future. And, you know, we're talking about what these figures really want. I, you know, for some of them, it seems like they don't really want anything other than to cause problems, that it's a personal issue with McCarthy. It seems like Matt Gates is certainly in that category. Uh, I don't know how many others, perhaps there are some others as well, but for him, it's really just about causing a bit of drama, getting on television and getting under the skin of McCarthy. And one thing that I saw that he did yesterday, which was actually rather amusing, was send a letter to the architect of the Capitol saying, I've noticed that McCarthy has already moved into the speaker's office, but he hasn't been elected speaker. In fact, he's come in second place in all of the votes we've had for speaker so far. So by what right is he occupying the office of the speaker? And it, it is actually quite a fair point. But Certainly, it seems as though he's needling at McCarthy. And did you see how he signed that? No. So he he pointed out McCarthy was using the term speaker designate, which he's not because you need to be basically elected for that. 
Matt Gates used the term congressman. He's not a congressman yet. The swearing in happens after you elect the speaker. So somebody else on McCarthy's team, or I think it was a reporter, pointed out, uh, then you need to change this to congressman-elect if you're going to be accurate. And I think that that kind of sums up the attention to detail that these folks have, the seriousness that they have. He was literally writing a letter to complain about something McCarthy did that he himself was doing in the letter that he wrote. I was watching the speeches that Chip Roy gave on the House floor when he was nominating alternative candidates for the speakership. I think there were at least two. And listening to his description of grievances to try to get an idea for what he wanted and what he was so upset about and what he was pursuing. And it was rather scant on policy differences or anything of that kind. We've been hearing from CNN that Chip Roy is interested in rules changes, and you were just talking about that too. But what did I actually hear from Chip Roy when he was describing the rules that he wanted to change and why he thought Washington was so broken, as he kept on saying? What was the issue that seems to be getting on his nerves, that's causing all this, that he's really driven by? What did he keep coming back to? The thing that he kept coming back to was saying, the house is full. Isn't this great seeing the house full? When we're here making speeches all the time, no one's here to listen to us in the house. It's an empty chamber. and making speeches an empty changer. We need to change that so we can have people here listening when we're giving speeches. And he's going on about that point and keep on coming back to that point. And it seems to me like what he's really looking for is an audience for his grandstanding, that he's upset that when he's soapboxing on the House floor, he doesn't have a captive audience of other members in the room that have to listen to him. And it it, it is rather narcissistic, isn't it? I mean, (laughs) the House floor has not really lately been the place where a lot of the legislative sausages are being made because of the role of committees. You know, the committees are the ones who really write the bills and so on. That's where most of the important work is happening. And the House floor is an opportunity for people to get on C-SPAN. But it seems as though Chip Roy is rather frustrated that when he goes there and, and does his mugging for C-SPAN, he doesn't also have 400 people who are required to sit and listen to him. And that seems to be really getting on his nerves. It's hard to imagine that many people in the American public would be equally disturbed by this situation. But uh, it, it certainly seems that Mr. Roy's concerns are very squarely on matters that pertain to not only Washington, D.C., but the uh, two or three block radius of the U.S. Capitol alone. Well, John, and we need to get into the media coverage of this because I think Jake Tapper has been doing something that's been really annoying. He's been saying basically that 19 or 20 of the detractors of Kevin McCarthy are in it for personal reasons and Chip Roy is in it for policy reasons. Um, and then, you know, there's been a lot of Alyssa Farah just saying bullshit that just is not true. It's the analysis is skin deep. But besides that, if you look at the rules changes that they're act- asking for, John, we mentioned the motion to vacate. We mentioned the importance of the rules committee. And, and there are there are some other things that have been given up uh, by Kevin McCarthy, like the Homan rule, where any member can pro- propose an amendment to cut the salary of a specific staffer, so a civil servant government. You could theoretically defund the whole FBI, or you could defund the team of the FBI that was investigating one of your friends by reinstituting the Homan rule. Uh, They want to do replace Paygo with Cutco. 
I don't know how much it's interesting for for me to explain these rules to people, but basically under President Obama, uh, he cut a deal with Republicans in the 2008 financial crisis and and the ramifications thereof after it, that any type of spending needed to be paid for as you went, pay for it as you go. Uh, McCarthy's like, we're going to be more fiscally conservative. Everything needs to have a cut as you go. So ultimately, the spending needs to be cut in every piece, new piece of legislation. And, and there's other things that have been added. But the net result of what has been done in the House, it's not going to drastically impact spending. It will at the margins. You know, a couple percent here or there. Uh, it's probably just going to lead to a lot of fights that ultimately have the same level of spending due to continuing resolutions, which is the government saying, what we're going to do is instead of increasing funding, which is natural when you have inflation every year and natural to, to fund new programs that have worked very well, natural when you have natural disasters that you need to pay for or there's a war in Ukraine, ultimately, they're just going to grind it to a halt and say, okay, this is the funding that we used last year. $1.7 was the recent bill that was passed. I'm sure everybody heard about that. Next year, it's going to be the same funding amount. And that's a continuing resolution as opposed to an omnibus where it's a bunch of different pieces of legislation that fund a bunch of different areas of the government mashed together at a different funding level. So that is all to say, John, you began this by saying all that Chip Roy seems to want is media attention. I would argue, yes, you're right. Jake Tapper saying he's a serious policy person is wrong. I would first point to the fact that he was Ted Cruz's chief of staff and maybe direct architect of the 2013 government shutdown over Obamacare, which was done nothing other than to create media attention and shut down the government and make federal workers feel pain without getting their paycheck. But also, John, all of these changes that we've just mentioned, the Rules Committee, the motion to vacate, the spending fiscal conservative policies, they're not substance. They are literally created so that Chip Roy can get on the nightly news on ABC. They can play a Picture of him giving a speech as one of the fiscal conservatives, the leaders of this movement, when the government shuts down or when they can't reach a deal on the debt ceiling. So what happens if they don't reach a deal on the debt ceiling? I'm not an economist, John, but it's probably some type of global recession or at least American recession. Our economy won't work. Um, So ultimately, it's not serious solutions and systematic changes like he's portraying it on TV and like people like Jake Tapper are falling for. It's bullshit at the margins that make the House not work, prevent bipartisanship, and throw the country into crisis in a, in a governing form from crisis to crisis so that these people get more media attention. So I agree with you. The way you've characterized him is really as the ultimate DC creature, someone who is a chief of staff on Capitol Hill, went back to Capitol Hill as a member, and is mostly preoccupied by fights about parliamentary rules and things like this, right? Really the the ultimate creature of Washington. And I sometimes find it to be amusing, frustrating, ironic, how figures like this, in the way that they express political rhetoric, often try so hard to portray themselves as capturing the id of a frustrated nation that hates DC and is frustrated by DC. And they always say, this city is broken. This town is broken. I'm here to, to express what all the people out there in normal middle America want. And I'm going to come and fix this broken system and put my foot down. But And we said this on the last episode, but 
when you actually speak to people in the broader public who are upset with Congress or frustrated by Congress, the way it operates, what they're talking about, what they're frustrated by is gridlock, partisan acrimony, and the difficulty of passing laws and achieving things. And Chip Roy and these changes that he's suggesting to the rules are in pursuit of exactly those things that make people so upset with Washington, right? I mean, just like you said, what he wants is to enable more opportunities for floor fights about specific line items in the U.S. federal budget, open all of it up for conflict and define more conflict to put it further out in public and to bog down the process of appropriation and legislation, make it as difficult as possible. So really what people are frustrated by is exactly what he represents, him and others like him, the Jim Jordans and so on. They are the avatars of all the things that ordinary people complain about when it comes to Congress. Well, John, in law school, his first job was to help John Cornyn win a Senate seat. And then when John Cornyn became elected, he became his staff director. Uh, And then he went to the Perry administration to do, it's basically a position that I had uh, for the government of Puerto Rico, where you're lobbying the federal government for state funds. Then he went to be Ted Cruz's staff. And then he became uh, a Texas assistant attorney general, worked for Ted Cruz's Supreme uh, Super PAC during the presidential election in 2016. I mean, and then he was elected in 2018 to be a member of the House of Rep. The guy is a career politician. And like you said, like literally, I just read off a lot of his resume. And like you said, all that he does is talk about how politics is broken and how he's an outsider and he's here to change it. It's just all so shallow and hollow and makes absolutely no sense. And the way that he is working to change it, again, is not substantive structural changes, not opening the process up to be more democratic. It's to get himself a seat on the Rules Committee. It's to break things more, again, so that the media attention uh, is there. So, so I've been pretty grossed out with the way that the media has been covering this, again, mainly CNN, saying oh, the 19 or 20 other folks are very selfish. They are only in this for personal reasons, but Chip Roy, he's in this for fiscal conservative policy change. That's bullshit. That is That could not be further from the truth. I'm not saying all fiscal conservatives are like this, but Chip Roy certainly is. And, and I'll give you another one. Patrick McHenry is the opposite of Chip Roy, right? He's somebody that's that's been in public service for years, and we can get into him in a little bit. He's looking to be chair of the Financial Services Committee. He has legitimate policy agenda items. He's done legitimate bipartisan work, and he's dedicated to this stuff. But people probably don't even know who he is because he's not looking out for the microphone. He's not in the middle of this fight. Uh, he's not on CNN and Fox News all the time like these. a lot of these 19 were. So I couldn't agree with you more. It's actually very frustrating because... These people running in districts where they will always be reelected unless there's some massive redistricting. And now you have the mainstream media kind of eating it up, at least in Jake Tapper and CNN's case. Well, Justin, you mentioned something that you noticed on Fox News, and that was what I thought was a really telling admission by Chip Roy in an interview that he did there. And I want us to go into this because I I think it's very instructive. 
So Mr. Roy has presented in other interviews and in his comments on the House floor that he's in this because McCarthy has not agreed to these specific rule changes that he is so relentlessly pursuing, that he's got a single-minded focus on these rule changes. This is the reason that he can't back McCarthy. If McCarthy had adopted these rule changes, he would back him. But because McCarthy hasn't, he's forced to consider other candidates. You told me that he was asked by Fox News if the candidate that he had decided to instead back, Byron Donalds, had endorsed these rule changes, and he said that he didn't know. Is that correct? That is correct. And our former guest, Jackie Heinrich, she underlined that in, in a tweet. And it's just, it's it's telling, right? So there's there's two reasons why, well, there's, there's three reasons why you could be doing this. One, the media attention, which I think we all agree every one of them likes. Um, but number two, it would be policy changes, like the rule changes. And obviously, that's not the case here because he it, he hasn't even brought that up to Byron Donalds. And that is evidently clear and very, very verifiable by the information that we just shared. And then the third reason is personal advancement, which would be a seat on a committee or a chairmanship on a committee. And it's just gross that ultimately what is happening, and I have no respect for Kevin McCarthy. I think he's one of the worst creatures in Washington, D.C. So I, I am not sharing a, uh, shedding a tear for him. But I think it's gross that ultimately what is happening is folks on mainstream media outlets are touting that Chip Roy is really in it for policy changes, which would imply directly that he's in it for the greater good and not some personal gain. When we have verifiable proof that he is only in it for the greater good and for media and for personal gain, um, as evidenced by the Fox News White House correspondent. I think that it reveals the pretextual nature of a lot of these complaints that the objectors are, are bringing to the discussion. Because and if the thing that they profess they care about more than anything else, their single-minded focus, is revealed as not even be something they're aware of in regard to the candidates that they're instead backing, you you have to conclude that they don't care as much about these things as they say they do. But all of this just leads to the question of what actually would placate these members. And the answer might really be nothing other than McCarthy not becoming speaker. Because if it's all pretextual and nothing else matters other than scalping McCarthy, the only solution to any of this is that McCarthy steps aside and someone else comes forward, unless there is the possibility of building some kind of coalition for Democrats. But you would imagine that that wouldn't be with McCarthy as speaker either. So again, we're stuck in the same place that we were when we had the last conversation. And six rounds of voting have proven how stuck we are and how firm the math is. We've had six rounds of voting, Justin. It's uh, Catherine of Aragon, Anne Boleyn, Jane Seymour, uh, and of Cleves, uh, Catherine Howard, and, and Catherine Parr, the six unhappy wives of Kevin McCarthy. I didn't hear Congresswoman Renee Elmers. Oh, well, very good, very good. <laughs> I guess uh, maybe she's uh, the uh, Jane Seymour of... Um, <laughs> of Kevin McCarthy, you know, the, the, the true the true love that ended in, in tragedy. <laughs> what we've just said is, if all of this is pretextual, the only way that the Republicans can come on side is if we find someone other than McCarthy. We've said that the only way around getting Republicans is getting some Democrats to play along. They're not going to want McCarthy. 
So let's look further afield. Tell me about who else could end up with the big brass ring. Yeah, and and we referenced this earlier. We focused so much on Chip Roy because he is the embodiment of what is wrong with Washington, D.C. and dishonest politicians, but also because he claims that he can bring 10 of the McCarthy detractors alongside with him. So that means 11. That means 11 more votes for McCarthy. I think that that means there are roughly 10 potential people opposing McCarthy. Um, So right now, we can't assume that McCarthy has the votes. I think based on the motion to adjourn, the four Republicans that voted against that and two didn't vote were Biggs, Boebert, Crane, Gates. So I would think, John, it's safe to assume that there's at least four against him. And there's probably another one out there somewhere. Maybe maybe it's good who claimed that he's willing to vote against McCarthy for six months. So if all five of those folks vote against McCarthy, all the Democrats show up and these folks vote for somebody against him, then McCarthy cannot be speaker no matter what if these five stick together. So who could we look at as a potential alternative? John, I think it comes down to, I think, well, we can look at the four people, first being Byron Donalds, who I think will probably flip and start voting for McCarthy again. But he's really a patsy that the conservative movement put up. He received 20 votes on the last vote with Sparts voting present. I think there is 0.000% chance that he winds up speaker or in leadership. And the reasoning is very simple. This is the start of his second term. That's just, and he's not been a governor. He's not been, you know, this adroit politician. What he has been is on Fox News all the time. He has personal history problems with arrests and so on and so forth. Um, And he really just doesn't seem like he has that much substance based on what we've experienced during this vote for speaker. He originally voted for McCarthy twice and then didn't know if what he was going to do on the third ballot and all of a sudden changed his mind, voted for Jim Jordan. Then he started to vote for himself. So it's, it's it's a very wacky thing. So we can cross him off the list. I think the next one we can go to who I think has a real chance, and this is if we go a long time and if moderates just get worn down, is potentially Jim Jordan. The reason why I think he has a chance, even though he doesn't want this, I think he maybe has a 5% chance, 10% chance to become speaker. I don't know. I'm just making up numbers. Not that high, but he has a chance, is because he 100% has all the House Freedom Caucus and most of the true true believer conservative far right wing members of the House on his side. The problem there, John, is a couple things. Number one, the most important thing to Mr. Jim Jordan is the media. And why is that? He wants to be chair of the Judiciary Committee so that he can then do all of these different type of investigations from a church-style committee, which the church committee investigated abuses of the intelligence committees back in, I think it was 1975, mid-70s. So he wants TV to be like it was the Benghazi investigation. He also wants to investigate Hunter Biden. He doesn't care about the mainstream attention. He cares about being a god in the conservative media ecosystem. So that is maybe reason number one why he doesn't want to be speaker, because if you're speaker, you probably actually have to do work behind the scenes. Um, Reason number two is he won't get moderate votes. I don't I would be stunned if somebody like Congressman Don Bacon who has integrity then voted for Jim Jordan. That just does it doesn't make any sense logically but also take away the, you know, building up somebody as being a moral person and ethical even though I believe he was an Air Force general uh general, it would kill him in his district. 
He's in a he's in a Biden district. And if you vote for somebody like Jim Jordan, who is generally repulsed by the majority of the public, that's not going to help you get reelected. So I want to stop there, see if you have any thoughts on on either of those two gentlemen. The Byron Donalds thing, we were talking about this before, and you've kind of gone over what we were saying, but he, he seems rather clueless in this whole process. And I think Patsy was the word that I used when we were talking about this before, uh, you, you know, just put up as a straw man by uh, the dissenters. And it was funny watching him being interviewed on CNN and them asking him, so you, you've been voting for McCarthy, right? And you said, yeah, yeah, McCarthy's great. I, you know, I'm, I'm voting for McCarthy. And they said, would, would you vote for Jim Jordan? And he goes, oh, yeah, I mean, Jim would make a great speaker. And then in the next round of voting, voted for Jim Jordan. And I was wondering if CNN had put the, put the idea in his head that uh, he might vote for Jordan the next time. And funny enough, he was the only person so far in the entire process that's actually changed his vote from McCarthy to non-McCarthy or the other way around. Jeffries has had 212 votes every single time. McCarthy has uh, gone from 203 to 201, one person going present, and then Donald, the only person who's gone from McCarthy and then someone else. And it's funny that they would start putting him up as a candidate, you know, the, the person who's clearly the most clueless in this entire process. Uh, and so, again, can be disregarded as a real possibility. And then Jordan, like you said, it's hard to imagine that if McCarthy can't get the number of votes that he needed that Jordan would be able to. I mean, Jordan is a much more polarizing figure, a, a, a figure who I think the Republicans would be much more remiss about putting as the face of their caucus because of how, you know, sort of repulsive he is as a public figure and how off-putting he is to so many people in the broader American life. And like you said, many of the people who have been supporting McCarthy that are on the more mainstream side of the conference that might not even really include McCarthy, frankly, would be pretty disappointed to see these obstinate 20 people get what they wanted. There has been this building frustration with the whole squeaky wheel gets the grease dynamic in the Republican House conference where many of these members show up and kind of do their jobs don't spend a lot of time with media and get on with it. And then a very, very small group of people, in this case, it started with only about five and is now grown to about 20, so relentlessly hold things up and cause problems and complain and end up getting all these concessions. And the ultimate concession would be picking a speaker from their cohort and handing it to them saying, all right, because you five didn't want to do what 200 people wanted to do, you get your choice of speaker. I think that this would really be a breaking point for the Bacons and the Dusty Johnsons and the McCalls and the David Joyces. And there's more of those people than there are of the anti-McCarthy dissenters. It's a larger group. Fitzpatrick, Gallagher, we can keep going, you know? Yeah, yeah. There's There's a lot of people like this. You know, you can look at the impeachment votes for Trump and say, oh, only 10 people. But this group of people that we're describing is actually a lot larger. A lot of these people voted against impeaching Trump. Despite probably very much wanting to vote to impeach Trump. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. But that doesn't mean that they're Matt Gates or Jim Jordan. They're, they, they kind of tried to keep their heads down lower in the Trump thing and pass the conservative policy measures that they're looking for. But the last thing that they want is to, you know, 
hand the keys to their entire house conference over to to that wing. This is their domain. This is the house. This is where they operate. This is where many of them have been for decades. And like I said, there's more of them than there are of the Gateses. So if the gate, if you can't get the numbers from McCarthy, how could you get the numbers for someone that is the horse of the Gates movement? It's not, it won't happen. And these sorts of figures have started, the kinds that we're talking about, the more mainstream conservatives, they've been popping up a bit more in the media in the last week. And a lot of them have been going to the press and saying what we're saying now, that they're fed up with this squeaky wheel against the, the grease thing. And they want to really put their foot down and have the fight that they should have been having and sort of have been having for quite a long time. And so they're floating these ideas of cooperating with the Democrats or maybe finding some other candidate. But uh, I don't think that they're going to just give in. Well, here's here's the funny thing, John. With Chip Roy and the 10 supposedly other members flipping and, and McCarthy being much closer now, 50% closer allegedly to becoming speaker when votes start on Thursday, which is yesterday from when this podcast has been released. Ultimately, it feels like if McCarthy is speaker, and he gives in to what these people want, and because of what we've been discussing, these people will run the house, that these people have won. And it's a huge slap in the face to all the McCarthy detractors. More specifically, you had Mike Rogers, who was by no means a moderate. You had Mike Rogers, I think it's Alabama. He basically got up and said that unless everybody votes for McCarthy, the the rules package that we have negotiated will be thrown out and we will kick people off committees. How much of a fool does he look like right now if McCarthy is ultimately elected and they don't have the ability to kick people off of committees because of the motion to vacate? His word is worth what? Nothing in front of the whole conference threatening these people. And ultimately, these people, maybe four of them don't get rewarded, but every other one of them gets rewarded for creating a national spectacle. It's funny that they are so opposed to McCarthy because McCarthy has been giving them so much of what they wanted and has proven again and again and again what a sort of squish he is and how pliable he is. I I think that is perhaps part of why there is an odd appetite for McCarthy here and there because everyone has proven that they can get McCarthy to say his favorite word, which is yes to them when they come and ask him for something. So in in that sense, the Democrats have been enjoying the circus that's been going on on the Republican side of the House. But if it really comes down to McCarthy versus someone else, the, the Democrats might find something to like about McCarthy because, like I said, his favorite wor- uh, word is yes. And when you get to, you know, a budget fight or, or something, and you've got the weight of the White House and the Senate on one side, you might be able to take the Play-Doh figure that is McCarthy and uh, morph him in the way that you need to, to achieve something important. But at the same time, the Democrats have no respect for McCarthy. They, they've watched McCarthy try to coddle up uh, Donald Trump, who is this um, television game show celebrity who 
came to Washington, committed a lot of crimes, got impeached twice, and is now under criminal investigation and was responsible in large part for the last election losses, uh, the last several election cycles that the Republicans lost so badly. Uh, <laughs> they watched McCarthy coddle up to this figure, someone who led an attack against the U.S. Capitol, put their lives in danger, and so on. They watched McCarthy work so hard to placate and mollify people like Marjorie Taylor Greene as he was approaching the speakership, someone who posted on social media sites all kinds of violent homicidal threats against Speaker Pelosi and other Democrats, someone who has been uh, relentlessly advancing and pursuing all kinds of anti-Semitic conspiracy theories like the QAnon, uh, like uh, the idea that uh, Jewish people were causing wildfires in California through space lasers. Uh, they watched McCarthy uh, humiliate himself in all of these different ways and coddle up to all of, uh, some of the worst people in American life. And there is something quite poetic about how uh, in the traditional Faustian bargain, you sell your soul, but get what you're looking for. But in this case, you're seeing him sell his soul and not even get what he wanted. Not yet. In in, in John, Democrats, it goes one step further, and there's a parallel here. Uh, a lot of, well, at least a lot of the five that we think there is, four that we know there is, don't like McCarthy because of personal reasons. The Democrats don't like McCarthy because of personal reasons, too. McCarthy said in July, well, first off, he's the polar opposite of Speaker Pelosi. Speaker Pelosi was brilliant. She had policy as a goal. She had strategy as a tool. She had loyalty in her top lieutenants from Steny Hoyer and Jim Clyburn. And she just ate tactics for breakfast, right? She had everything down pat. She's arguably one of the best speakers of the House Republican or Democrat in modern history. Um, she was full of substance, and McCarthy is the opposite of everything that I just said. And also, Speaker Pelosi had principle. But also, it became so personal between these two because they were so opposite that I think it was in July when he was when Kevin McCarthy was bragging about becoming the next Speaker of the House and how he was going to have these massive margins. And I believe this was recorded, John. He said that when he grabs the mallet from Nancy Pelosi, it's going to be difficult for him to not hit her in the head with it. So, so it, it goes beyond every everything that you just said is accurate, but he is looked at as the worst of the worst in the Democratic Party. And I think that that's how you get, ultimately, Democrats sitting in their seat with their families here for five straight hours voting against Kevin McCarthy. Democrats not willing to make a deal. Um, Democrats getting irate at a motion to adjourn at 8 p.m., 8.30 p.m., because they want the last two votes there. They fucking hate this guy. It's really that simple. There is no set of circumstances where they would ever help Kevin McCarthy become Speaker of the House, period, full stop. Yeah, it is really impressive how organized they've been the last few days in this effort because- They hate the guy, dude. <laughs> from a certain point of view, the outcome of this vote shouldn't really matter that much to them, right? They're in the minority. There's going to be a Republican Speaker- and the difference on policy and so on between a McCarthy and a Scalise or one of the other plausible alternatives might not seem to be that significant. It's not really their fight, so to speak. However, by being so organized, number one, they're getting their revenge on McCarthy. But number two, they're drawing quite a contrast. We see how the Republicans can't coalesce around a speaker, but on the Democratic side of the aisle, every single 
member elect is voting for the same person, Akeem Jeffries, someone who only became the actual leader a few days ago because they've had Pelosi until now. They turn over their entire leadership team. They had a leadership team, you know, the top three positions being Pelosi, Hoyer, and Clyburn, all of them stepping out of those roles, an all new leadership team. You know, this would be traditionally the time where there would be a bit of competition for those roles, but instead they've completely coalesced around one person. And, uh, you know, they keep reading his name off, nominating him applause after his name. The Democratic caucus has had a bit of acrimony, you know, the people on the further kind of left or progressive wing of the caucus, they haven't always gotten on very well with Jeffries. In fact, Ocasio and some of the group around her were even threatening to primary Jeffries. They said he was their number one target to try to take down more incumbents like Ocasio did to Joe Crowley and her district. Uh, but it appears as though they've gotten everyone in line. And if you look at their pattern of organization, over the last couple of decades, it is quite impressive because Pelosi managed to have, uh, she was never challenged for leadership in the way that McCarthy is now, where it's, you know, all playing out in public on, on the House floor. In fact, she stayed in that role with a real grip on the position, even throughout many very disappointing election cycles. The, the Democrats had some bad election cycles during the time that Pelosi was in leadership, but she still never had a very credible challenge to remove her. And that kind of organization is in real contrast to the Republicans. And like we said, many people in the public, when they complain about Washington, they talk about the chaos. And the Democrats are painting a pretty clear picture for the public about which party is more chaotic. I mean, will people remember this in two years when there's another election? I don't know. But, you know, these things get into your head. The other thing that I was kind of saying before is I think there is a moral lesson, and I hope that many Democrats and others are appreciating the opportunity to tell this moral lesson, which is that if you, in real life, when you make a Faustian bargain, like the one that McCarthy had been trying to make, it might backfire. You might not get what you want. And that's important. That's important for the the public to recognize for political figures to recognize, to see McCarthy's uh, pursuit of, of his ambition fall apart, even despite all of those moral compromises he, he made. It's a real lesson that it's not worth it to make those moral compromises. It would be the greatest lesson and greatest step towards fixing Washington, D.C. that could be made if Kevin McCarthy and his way of operating ultimately failed. I, I just wanted to, because it's not a sure thing that he's going to win, like you're saying, wanted to bring up two more people that that could potentially get it. And the speaker could be from somebody that we are not even naming. So there's Steve Scalise, who's the second in command, who if you turn on cable news, that's the name you're going to hear. You heard Ken Buck, congressman I respect, disagree with on almost everything, probably except for tech policy. He's a very hardline conservative, but he's not a wackadoo. He has said that he he potentially will would like to look at Steve Scalise if if things don't change materially uh, and soon for Kevin McCarthy and things look to be changing. So let's look at him. So he is much more conservative than Congressman McCarthy. He is from Louisiana. He's been quoted as saying that he is David Duke, as folks will remember, I believe, the of the KKK. He's David Duke without the baggage. 
that quote was from uh, maybe a decade or two ago, so a while ago, but it shows that he is, um, you know, he's not a moderate. He's he's definitely a fiscal conservative, social conservative, anti-abortion, um, and pushing all the things that progressives and liberals don't like. Uh, thing that he has though is a little bit more integrity, a lot more integrity uh, throughout the GOP than Kevin McCarthy does. He's also likable, which Kevin McCarthy has a good personality. It's just he's a liar. Steve Scalise has a great personality, the Southern drawl, backslapping. He, he can have a conversation with people he agrees with, disagrees with, and he should be able to get a significant amount of the caucus to vote for him. However, back from 2015 on forward, the problem is that like Kevin McCarthy, there are some in the Freedom Caucus who personally do not like Steve Scalise because they believe he's too ambitious. Because during the last leadership fight, which was 2015, when Boehner got deposed, uh, Kevin McCarthy tried to run, and then he got taken down by allegations from Walter Jones, largely. There were a bunch of different factors. The rules package, his comments on Benghazi, but it was largely, he said he stepped away for personal family reasons in the closed caucus door, standing next to his wife. And that morning, Walter Jones sent the letter. So that's pretty damn obvious to me. You had Steve Scalise come up out of nowhere. So Paul Ryan took over. He, in a closed door meeting, Paul Ryan got 200 of, I believe, the 243 votes. So he was elected within the caucus to go and be the speaker. Interesting enough, on the floor, Paul Ryan, I believe, got 232 of the Republican 240. 243 votes or whatever it, whatever it was. He, he didn't get nine votes. My boss was one to flip in that week in between because Paul Ryan gave him subcommittee chair of a small business committee. So it's to show you like the personal bargaining that's going on. Nine folks still voted against him. But ultimately, Steve Scalise went from nowhere to a leadership position. And he's continued to go up and go up and go up. And most people respect him for that. But there are some they probably will never vote for Steve Scalise, John, because they view him as kind of double dealing almost. Yeah. Steve Scalise was famous for two things, really. Number one was that he went to some white supremacist event. And number two was that he was almost assassinated when he was practicing for the congressional baseball game. And one of those things did not create a lot of sympathy and, and goodwill for him across the political spectrum. And the other did. The other being the more recent of those two incidents. Scalise obviously is in the running because he's the next person down the line in the leadership hierarchy on the Republican side. And that makes him a default name in this conversation. And Ken Buck said in that CNN interview that he was thinking about Scalise. But I think Ken Buck is really the only person so far that's really been saying it. And no one has actually nominated Scalise on the floor as an alternative, which they have for Big, Jordan, Donalds. Uh, so it makes you wonder a little bit about Scalise's position. And, you know, you suggested that some of these members don't like him because he's too ambitious. And I think that that might be accurate. It definitely seems as though Gates has some kind of problem with Scalise. And I know that Gates had been saying that, or was it Gates? Someone said, I think it was Gates, that you need a speaker who doesn't want the job, right? And this is kind of ridiculous. I remember I went to this event with Joe Scarborough in DC 
before the 2016 election. And I, I went and I, uh, after the event, I was speaking to some Republican Hill staffer and I asked him, so who do you think is going to run in 2016 and, and get the nomination? Because that that had been what Scarborough was talking about. And the guy said, oh, you got to look at Susana Martinez, the governor of, of New Mexico. That's the one to look at. And I said, it's funny, I haven't really seen her in any national media laying the groundwork for a campaign. And he says, oh, no, but the best presidents are the ones who don't want the job. I was thinking about that and what a ridiculous thing to say it really is because, I mean, it, it invites the question, which people have become U.S. president without wanting to be U.S. president? None. <laughs> None. George Washington. It's a, and even him. It's a prerequisite of becoming president is to want to become president. You have to do the things that would put you in a position to get there, right? Especially in the age of, of contemporary political campaigns. You, you can't become president without running a campaign. And it's a little bit, I mean, it's not quite like that with the speakership, but it is a little bit. Chip Roy was asked the same question about uh, Byron Donalds and Jim Jordan not wanting it. And he, and he, he was, I think he was kind of honest here. He's like, they're good politicians. They know what to say. <laughs> like, like, come on. They, they, they all want, maybe Jim Jordan doesn't want it because he wants the judiciary chair. I bet you he'd figure out some fucking way to, to be, speaker and chair of judiciary like like there is there these people probably want the job um it's just you can't be like kevin mccarthy dude where you're just so sweaty for the position that it's so obvious and off-putting to every scalise is close to that but he's not kevin mccarthy he has principles to be successful you have to have both you have to have the ambition for the job and you have to have a vision of what you hope to achieve in that position you need Two things. You can't be successful with only one and you can't be successful with only the other. You need them both. And McCarthy only has one of those things. He's just like all those Tory uh, party politicians in the UK that we keep on comparing him to. People who only care about trying to get the top job like it's a line on their LinkedIn profile or their CV and want it for no other reason than to have had the title. And that's where McCarthy fits in. It's an empty ambition. It's ambition to the position for its own sake. What you need to have is the ambition to get the job because it's a prerequisite to doing the things you need to do to be successful in that position, collecting your support, uh, taking the steps necessary. Um, but you also need to have some kind of vision of what, what you want to do in the position. You have to have goals of what you want to achieve or otherwise you won't achieve anything. So Scalise maybe seem, might have a little bit more of the latter. Certainly when he was giving the nominating speech for McCarthy, he, Scalise, mentioned policy issues that mattered for him. And we've been kind of interpreting a little bit of a shell game here as they give these nominating speeches, because some of these major figures, the the Scalises and, and the Jordans, you know, they're giving speeches supposedly on behalf of McCarthy, but they're really auditions for their own possible candidacy as an alternative. And Scalise, you know, of course, took advantage of this opportunity to mention a lot of the kind of policy issues. And he spoke about them with conviction. Whether the Republicans would really be in a position to do much about some of these matters, I'm not really sure. You know, we could have a discussion about that separately. But, you know, things like uh, inflation. I mean, I think that the Republicans having the majority might have an impact on inflation because you will probably, you know, not see the kind of big spending bills that we that we got in the last Congress. And then the border, they were talking quite a bit about the border. Can the Republicans make some kind of deal with the Democrats? No. On immigration? No. 
as of now, probably not, but that's something that someone in the speakership could pursue. <laughs> never say never, right? Yeah. I mean, we're in the age of never say never. I, th- the last time there was a uh, speakership deadlock like this one was 1923 as the news anchors keep on reminding us. I think you and I were accurately predicting this one or, you know, hedging towards it. Yeah. Well, I mean, we were talking in the last program about how the math was intractable. And if you had enough people that were determined to block McCarthy from getting the job, they were enough to prevent a majority vote. And that's exactly where we are. And it hasn't changed after six, after the six unhappy wives of Kevin McCarthy. (laughs) To use a crude analogy, if you're Kevin McCarthy, you really can't, and there's five uh, kamikaze pilots or suicide bombers, you can't really uh, negotiate with them. I think I think it was Charlie Dent said, you have hostage takers who take the hostage and their only goal is to kill the hostage, <laughs> which I mean is a pretty apt kind of analogy here. But yeah, no, I, I, I agree with you. And, and I think when I say never under the, the rules that have been set up and specifically Kevin McCarthy, I don't think, and Scalise would probably have to agree to a lot of those rules. I don't think you're getting any type of bipartisan deal. It would be a difficult one. The, the immigration issue has certainly proven to be one of the most difficult for uh, real progress. But, you know, it's an indication at least of what Scalise might try to pursue if he were to get that position. And it's a little bit more than um, some of the things that, uh, for example, Chip Roy was mentioning that all had to do with rules in Washington and the opportunity to uh, collect a captive audience of, of people in the room listening to his pontificating. I, I think, it, you know, issues like uh, immigration and inflation stuff probably can Energy, a bit more. he'd probably try and advance because he's probably in LNG exports. Probably have a, a bit more resonance for the, the average American voter. Just to really highlight how difficult immigration is and how the situation we're sitting in, if you told people 10 years ago we'd be sitting in the situation, they'd roll their eyes at you. Kevin McCarthy's book was Young Guns. And on the cover, it was Paul Ryan, Kevin McCarthy in the center, and then Eric Canner. And Eric Canner was largely fell by the immigration issue, one of the major issues that Dave Bratt at the time, an unknown Tea Party challenger, took him down on. And then in addition to that, immigration really ruined Marco Rubio's career because he was a member of the Gang of Eight, and now people consider him a rhino, no matter what he does or says. I'd say it was immigration more than the drink of water. Um, so, so it is a t- is a it is, it is a tough issue. But I, I wanted to mention one last challenger and be really clear: the next speaker could be anyone. It could be from anywhere, theoretically, um, but it could be a name that we haven't mentioned yet. That hasn't really been bandied about. I don't think it's going to be Elise Stefanik. Um, She's just as much of a shapeshifter as Kevin McCarthy. And when you're that transparent with it, people do not take well to it. I wanted to mention Patrick McHenry, who we actually mentioned, John, on the last show. And I think he's been getting some traction here. So Patrick McHenry is a true conservative from North Carolina. He's a fiscal conservative. He's going to be the chairman of the Financial Services Committee. He, when I was working in the House for Congressman Tim Hulescamp, who was one of those rabble rousers that was leading the charge, but he was also sensible enough to take a victory and vote for Paul Ryan when he really didn't get that much, subcommittee chair and small business committee. Like, that's not that, that much, was the fact that 
Patrick McHenry was the whip that dealt with us a lot of the time. So we don't we explained this last episode, but the way that Patrick McHenry operated was everybody hated these House Freedom Caucus people. And they were largely kind of in their own asocial bubble where they weren't like the most friendly or coveted people to be around by members in the GOP caucus or the Democratic side by that measure. But the way that Patrick McHenry would deal with these people is he'd show them respect because he seems to potentially be a genuinely nice guy. I don't know him that much, but he, he would show them respect. He wouldn't really come down with a hard line. He wouldn't scoff at them, wouldn't make fun of them and treat people with dignity. So he is somebody that could have the conservative vote block. Dan Bishop, who's been voting against Kevin McCarthy, scoffed at Steve Scalise as speaker, but said Kevin uh, Patrick McHenry could be interesting. Uh, in addition to you know being more palatable to the conservatives because of the way the I don't want to call them conservatives to these Freedom Caucus folks to many of them, he's also genuinely liked by moderates. Because if you go through his history on financial services and uh, other issues, but really financial stuff, it's not like we're going to pinch pennies and shut down the government. It's like we're going to increase transparency in bank regulations. We're going to increase technology used by the financial services sector to make things more efficient. We're going to increase technology to make things more transparent. It's He has these concrete goals that he's willing to work across the aisle to achieve because he actually has substance. Um, one of these things is crypto. I don't know his specific focus, but that is just to show that he has literal issues that are driving him. He is one of these people that does not want the speakership. He is totally against it because he understands the great strain that he would be under if he were given the speakership. And also, he wants to put through some messaging bills and some priority as chair, chairman of the Financial Services Committee. He's not well-known because he's not seeking to be well-known. He's seeking to do his job, but he has so much respect. I don't think he could get 218 right now. He'd have to give up some deals. However, when you have somebody that really doesn't want the job, and, and we started this with Jim Jordan. But on the other side, a more conservative name who is actually respected throughout the caucus, and he doesn't want the job, but let's say you didn't have a consensus after a week or you know, even after two more days, and you're still voting every single day, and Steve Scalise comes up, he doesn't get a consensus. Jordan's getting like 40 votes. It's going nowhere. If for somehow, some reason, somebody like Patrick McHenry does not want the job and is respected throughout the caucus were to come up, here's the best case scenario for Republicans, not these conservative hardliners. But Republicans, is you have somebody that ultimately becomes a consensus pick, has leverage, doesn't want the job, but agrees to take the job on one condition. You change the House rules to remove this silly motion to vacate so that instead of five people that hold Democles' sword over your head and can drop it at any reason, at any time, for any reason, uh, you make it half the caucus, so 111 members or 50 or 60, some number that is responsible and respectable so that the person who becomes speaker can actually legislate important things and prevent the country from defaulting on our debt. So I know that this is very unlikely. I think that McHenry would not only be a dark horse candidate who probably has less entrenched opposition than Steve Scalise even though Steve Scalise is more likely to be the next speaker than McHenry. Um, but I also think that this could lead to a path where you have a speaker that 
reconsolidates power, which is a good thing, and prevents the country from financial collapse and disaster. So that's my last little analysis on potential candidates that I think would be important to go over. Yeah, I mean, McHenry would certainly be one of the more obscure figures that has emerged to the speakership. You know, when you mention the name Patrick McHenry, it makes me think instead of Patrick Henry, the figure from before the American Revolution who said, give me liberty and give me death. And then after the American Revolution, put most of his energy into opposing the U.S. Constitution. Uh, McHenry is not a figure who's very well known to me or I imagine many Americans, including those who watch politics closely. However, I still remain skeptical about this whole idea of someone becoming speaker who doesn't want the job. Uh, For one thing, it's hard to, you know, we were just talking about how anybody could end up in that position and genuinely not want it. You, You have to take some steps at least to position yourself, even inadvertently, in a way that would position you to plausibly become speaker. You have to run for the house. You have to kind of maintain or or cultivate some kind of leadership role in in the house. But also, I wonder if anyone could possibly be successful in the role if they resented being placed in it. I'm thinking of people like Tom Ridge, the first secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, who was rather sour about even being asked to come to Washington and hated the job that he had been given, which was so damaging when he was the first person ever to serve in that role and and set up the department off on that footing when it was a difficult department. It was the merger of of different uh, agencies like immigration and customs that weren't a natural fit for each other. And you needed to get off on the right foot with a bit of positivity, optimism, and sort of can-doism around uh, the formulation of that entire department. And you had someone put in that position who really didn't want to be there and was negative about everything. And it, it led to um, what I think is a bit of departmental culture that even today is is not what we would have hoped when we created that department. How can you have success in a job that you resent having that you don't want to have? It's very hard to imagine. So I really don't buy this whole thing about someone coming in who really didn't want to be speaker. I think I take the point that you might be kind of implying in some of what you've said, that someone could you know, claim that they don't want it and, and try to comport themselves as if they don't want it so that they could have a little bit more leverage to make demands about the rules process. A bit of kabuki theater. And Mr. Gunnison, just because I don't want the job today under these certain circumstances of these rules and this slim uh, majority, which Patrick McHenry knows about, doesn't mean that if the party is in a crisis and I have ran for Congress and I have cultivated a leadership position, I'm chairman of an A committee, that if the rules went my way and I thought that I could get a lot done, uh, even policy-wise, that I would step in. And honestly, Paul Ryan did the same thing. So he he supposedly really didn't want the job. That's what the press have dutifully reported about Paul Ryan. But we know that Paul Ryan was quite an ambitious person who was obsessed with the House of Representatives, but also tried to become vice president of the United States. So I'm skeptical of the claim that he didn't want to be to be speaker. But like you said, by claiming so, he was able to make a deal about rules that put him in a stronger position. 
But again, we're coming back to this question of how much this is really about the things that the holdouts are claiming that they care about. Because if it's really about the rules, then uh, it will be difficult for McHenry or some other alternative to get the position without making those concessions on the rules that make replacing the speaker easier and so on. However, if all of that is pretextual nonsense, and this is really just about scalping McCarthy, then fine. (laughs) Then McHenry or, or anyone else can get in the position without lowering those motion to vacate thresholds to a level that would be untenable for an incoming speaker. So it really depends on the extent of sincerity within these demands for rule changes on behalf of the uh, dissenters. It also goes, though, John, if if they get the scalp of McCarthy and, and those folks ultimately are placated, so like the Gates and the Boebert and, you know, the, the four that voted for the, uh, against the motion to adjourn, and this thing just drags out for weeks on end, at some point, you're going to have donors and other people that put effective pressure on the remaining holdouts to accept something that maybe is a worse rules package than than what they have now. And it would probably take somebody that is not that well-known to be able to create that type of consensus with a rules package that has changed. Um, so, you know, we could have a deal the, the day that this is tomorrow or, or the day that this is posted, but... Uh, I still think that this thing is far from over. I don't think Kevin McCarthy has the votes. I think that the five that are against him, Biggs, Gates, Boebert, we know are totally cuckoo and against him. Crane, we don't know much about. I think Bob Good is insane and he is also hates McCarthy. So I think those five are pretty standardly against him. Um, It'll be interesting to see what happens, my friend. I have no idea. I think the best solution would be somebody like McCarthy. McHenry that uh, doesn't default and doesn't shut down the government. Yeah, we're heading into nighttime on Wednesday, not knowing what's coming. The last vote was this motion to adjourn. There were four people on the Republican side who voted no. What we're wondering really is, is this a proxy? Is this a stand? And is it an indication of how many more votes remain against McCarthy? Because if it's only those four, then McCarthy might be able to pull it off. But if this motion to adjourn vote is really separate from the main McCarthy issue, then we still have a ways to go. And we're talking about Scalise, we're talking about McHenry. We don't really have another candidate that's really been nominated in a serious way. So we'll see. By the time this episode releases, will there be a speaker? That's the million dollar